Hello and welcome to Clean Beauty Asia's podcast. I'm your host, Ali Rook. This interview series is a collection of conversations with people who operate, support, and facilitate beauty brands doing business in Asia. My aim is to provide valuable insights and information to make your beauty brand's transition into Asia as smooth and successful as possible. This first series is dedicated to cross-border e-commerce in China, and I really hope you find it valuable. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everyone. Today, I've got Josh Gardner, the CEO of Kung Fu Data. They're an e-commerce operator, and they operate many international brands on, in China on Tmall, Tmall Global, and JD. Today, I really wanted to chat to Josh about, there's so many things that he can talk about. He's definitely a prolific content creator on LinkedIn, um, and he sh- where he shares a lot of insights, and we wanted to dig into a, a few of those today. So thanks so much for joining me, Josh. It's a pleasure, and thank you for the very kind introduction. I will say, it's not just one person. We do have a team of people that produce all that content. Just so everyone knows, it's never one. It's a village to do that kind of work, and it's God's work. So uh, hats off, not to me, but to my amazing marketing team. They do an awesome job with research and content production. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. So um, let's dig into one thing that you talk about a lot, which is brands making mistakes, um, international brands making mistakes when they come into China, and specifically about distributors. So brands, particularly maybe cosmetics brands, they're coming into the market, they're looking for distributors. What are, say, three things that you would recommend that they look for specifically to avoid tripping up? I think the first thing is they need to own their own IP in China. That is the number one criteria. And there are several kinds of IP. So the first is you have to not own your international trademark in China. That's important. You have to own the domestic China trademark. Now, what does that mean? Is that your foreign name or English name? Yeah, it's that, but it's also something more important. You need to own how Chinese know you in Chinese, mm-hmm. the characters used by Chinese to describe your brand. And I have a wonderful case in beauty where this went wrong. A very famous US brand uh, was bought by a big group who is one of my clients. And they came to us and said, hey, we want to take this back. We want to take this over, da, da, da. We don't understand why they're launching our Tmall store. We have no traffic. Well, as it turns out, the geniuses in the New York office hired a name strategy company that didn't actually operate in China. Now, here's what they did. I think this is brilliant. They registered a name they thought sounded great in Chinese. They didn't bother to do even simple desktop research on Taobao to see how people knew the brand. So they didn't register the characters correctly. They registered their own characters. Now, unfortunately, the Chinese government sees you as a foreigner registering your own characters. So neither their law firm nor the name strategy company, the naming agency, either of them didn't do the research to find out how, you, you can't even believe this, right? So they registered it legally. They have a legal domestic registered trademark for their brand that doesn't mean anything to Chinese people. So they launched with one of the best operators in China, one of my competitors, great operator, to no avail. Tmall can't help them. You know why? Because a Tmall store is one thing. It was built as a brand control unit for Mm -hmm. Alibaba. It is 
authorized commerce, which means the only way you can launch a Tmall store is if you are the brand owner or the brand owner's licensee and can prove a clear legal path to ownership of a trademark in China. Now, a clever squatter registered the proper letters, right, the proper characters for this brand, which is a generic term. It's not like Coca-Cola. It's not mm. obvious. Mm. Legally, legally holds the domestic trademark and was a reseller of the product. So let's do the math here. The brand is doing 5 million RMB on their store and the squatter is doing 150 million. Now, Tmall can't take it back because it's mm. illegal for them to tell them. Mm. The guy has an actual legal right to the trade indefinitely because the brand not only didn't bother to do the research, they registered a trademark is irrelevant. So the government, when they went to sue, said, dude, you registered your own trademark. Yeah, right. Like, what's the problem? Like, we gave you the trademark you registered for. You didn't register for the right one, but that's your problem. It's not the, this guy wasn't even technically squatting because the name strategy company did it before the other guy. So they had first to file. They filed the wrong one. So do the research. Yeah. Hire people in China that can look up your brand so that you register the right stuff. Okay, that's, that's, that's number one. And if, if someone's squatting on it, don't do business in China until you get it back. And the reason I say that is even though you'll get revenue, you'll just add more value to the squat. Mm -hmm. So essentially, mm -hmm. you're basically building up the value and it's going to cost you more money to take back your IP. Mm -hmm. So that's point one. And I, I know yeah. that's a dramatic example, but it, it really did happen. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what Okay. So the next one I would say is I would, this is me. I prefer not to hire distributors on an exclusive basis. Yeah. So every distributor is going to want an exclusive because they don't really add a lot of value to a brand mm -hmm. unless they have an exclusive. But in my view, you'll never get it back. So the second that you sign an exclusive or semi-exclusive authorization with your letters to Tmall and JD or any place in China, you never get it back. Not without extreme pain, duress, and losses. And uh, go, I was mentioning a brand to you a few minutes ago that we took over from another TP. And this happens every time, you yeah. know, the, the shattering of the brand's image, the crushing of ratings and reviews, the, the dismantling of a reputation that took years to build. And mm -hmm. the distributors have that power. Yeah. So the next point is you register the IP to you. You mm -hmm. own the IP on these platforms. Okay. So that's point two. So it's not only registering the right IP, it's also controlling how that IP is authorized to be used. Yes. And speaking specifically of beauty brands, that includes domestic registration for the brand. C CFDA. So mm -hmm. if you haven't started the process, you start it. The cross-border thing, it's not going to last forever. Okay. And you're going to need to have a clear path to operate domestically in China. Uh, the other advantage of that is um, you get better options in terms of distributors and in terms of distribution in general, because the minute you register this in China, and it's actually not that expensive, it's just time consuming. Um, once you get it, everyone that's serious comes to talk to you because they have a defendable position because only one out of, let's say 500 brands actually gets their CFDA. So the distributors will put more weight. You get physical distribution. You can get a field marketing company to pick you up. You can actually get 
a lot of traction and scale very quickly and mm-hmm. the interest of like TV stations and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I think your options open up massively when you own that IP as well. Those three parts. Okay. And that make- the last one is, nope. and this is, no, no one wants to hear, it's point three. No one Sorry. wants to hear point three. And this is the truth. Most of them are unqualified to decide who they should hire to be the distributor in China. They can't actually qualify whether the distributor is a real distributor. Like they don't know anything about the industry. Mm. So they don't really have a way to understand whether the distributor is a good fit, whether they're honest, whether they curate the brands properly, whether they, you know, are a price cutter. You know, there's just so many things that can go wrong, Mm. right? And distribution in China is not a wholesale distribution business like it is in the States or in Europe. Like in the UK, like you hire a distributor, you don't like them. They're like a vendor. You just fire them. You get a new one. In China, it's a very sticky relationship. <laughs> it's more like marriage. So take, you know, you're going to take a long time to choose your wife or your husband. You have to put equally amount of time to choose your distributor in China because the yeah. partnership itself has way more value than it does in other markets because the person has to do so many more things. And so they're either going to slap you with an exclusivity because to make all those investments and scale your brand, it's really high risk for them and the res- mm-hmm. resource heavy, operationally mm-hmm. and resource heavy. Um, or if they're doing it on a non-exclusive, you're going to pay for it, in which case you still need to control all the assets associated with your brand. So I would say the process of distributor selection is not a commercial dis- decision. In other words, the guy offers you to buy a bunch of stuff from you at a price. That is yep. not how you choose a partner in China. Most of them are doing Trojan horses. They're baiting you. So as soon as you sign the authorization documents, they didn't do whatever the hell they want. You can't get out of it. So I have a client um, that is not in beauty, but it's in health and uh, sort of adjacent space, a New Zealand brand. And they went and had these wonderful guys who were their distributor uh, cross-border. Amazing job with activation. But then they got this funny idea that they should, you know, these young guys would want to be joint venture partners with them and share how they did it and stuff. And of course, China, they're not going to do that, right? It's just not realistic. You came to me and said, hey, Josh, can we work in your office and, you know, we'll, we'll do it together. I'd be like, yeah, you can go work in someone else's office, right? You know, that's, it's a really tough business to be good at in China, right? It's a mm-hmm. get good at everything and you're not going to share that IP or that knowledge. And so they ended up in a fight and, and they dissolved that relationship before they did the distributor, you know, didn't deliberately do anything bad, but essentially put the brand in a kind of precarious situation. Right. They got it back. The other, the new distributor to hire, them, they did an even worse job with selection. So they hired someone who's just rich. She's just rich. She's oh, rich yeah. and her family's rich and powerful. And she convinced them that she can do this, but actually had no track record ever operating a health or beauty brand mm. in China. Just had money. Mm. And they were mm. like, oh, she guaranteed us purchase. Complete disaster. My team came in to do the auditing. I was crying at all the mistakes. I said, just fire the whole team. You can't work with them. And they're still trying to dissolve the partnership. And it's been a year. Mm. Right? Yeah. So you, I mean, this is going to bite you and it's going to stay as it's like poison, right? It doesn't heal. It just becomes like cancer and it metastasizes. So I would say that's a very bad way to go into China. So either have the resources to control all the documents and, and IP 
and hire services providers as distributors like the luxury brands do, mm -hmm. or spend the time to get married, find a good partner, mm -hmm. go to China, hire some real Chinese people maybe, mm -hmm. you know, or people that lived in China and actually know this business really mm -hmm. well, speak Chinese, it can actually help you evaluate and find a real potential partner in the market who's gonna have equal investment and you know, demand transparency and make sure everything in your contracts is dialed up. Don't assume you can get out of anything. Like yeah. just because you have a three day cancellation clause in China doesn't mean anything. Hmm. I, think, I think that's such an interesting thing because I do get people coming to me, they're in that space, they want a distributor or they've had distributors reach out to them. And I'm often surprised at how quickly they want to do this deal. They, they don't want to, they're not interested in the due diligence and I'm there asking the questions and, and often brands, they don't, almost don't want to hear it, right? Because they just want to get on with it. And obviously they don't understand how detrimental that that can be to, um, to the long-term effect of the brand in the market. But, but yeah, I, I think uh, it sounds like doomsday, but uh, being- It's not, being... It's not doomsday, it's called due diligence. Yeah. There's a whole different thing. It's yeah. not yeah. doomsday, it's due diligence. You know, you have to spend the time. No one wants to, right? They just no. want it to be easy, but- yeah. China is not easy. So I think like when distributors approach you, you have to be suspicious. Mm -hmm. um, the best way to check them out is to go to Tmall or through third party agencies you already work with and, and executives you know and trust in the region and, and have them tell you what they think of that distributor or if they've yeah. heard of them and do, some, do background checks, right? It's not mm -hmm. that hard to hire like a risk management company, uh, an investigator, or even go to the platforms themselves, look at the ratings, check their references, go talk to their clients. I mean, how many references do brand managers check? I mean, I can tell you, not many. None, yeah. At most yeah. one, right? Mm. It's like, and and the difference, this decision is, is your outcome in China. Huge. If you're a good yeah. brand, you make this decision the wrong way, your life is a nightmare. Now, mm. the exception to that is if you don't care, and there are clients, that absolutely don't care what happens in China. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. that's the case, then yeah, take the money, right? Mm. It's don't sign the exclusivity, but sure, wholesale like crazy. Like that's fine, mm. you know? And there's ways to manage it if you don't care about the brand as much, but it depends on your positioning. So if you're like mass market, doesn't matter. And you don't really want to operate in China. I think a wholesale distributor relationship is fine. Can work, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure, sure. Okay, so if we talk about something, maybe a success story or, um, so, you know, cosmetics is notoriously competitive. So do you have any recent examples of someone who's done a really good job at China entry? Because it can be so tough as we discussed. What's an example of a so success? I was saying uh, in this field, the, the most interesting case of 2019 to me was Supergoop on uh, Tmall Global. Yep. I thought the Tmall Global yep. team and the, the TT that did that did an amazing job. So essentially they, but they invested heavily, right? Mm. Let's be clear. This was not a zero to one starting with a dollar, right? There was money raised to do the activation. It was mm. wildly successful, but it involved a lot of different parties. So obviously the operator themselves raised the money to do it right and mm -hmm. put the money in. I'm sure the um, Tmall itself was keen and really put resources behind the brand. And they used tier one live stream. They used 
pretty much every method that you could possibly imagine from PR to, you know, social community building. They basically just use the entire recipe, right? That they could every ingredient in the recipe and it worked really well, but it was a true zero to one. Literally you could call it an overnight success and it really happened and I can prove it. And we have all the data and I was happy because Honestly, it never happens, right? Overnight success in China is not something you should expect. It's mm. um, really hard to do. This is a case for the beauty industry that really did happen last year. Uh, you could call it a unicorn because in general, it's never that simple. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think for them, it was a wild success. I think it's just way more successful than they thought. And I think that same operator is done well with some of the other brands they have, but this is their big, you know, success. Yeah. And it was a zero to one. So that's exciting for indie brands because Tupper Goop is an indie brand. Yeah. Uh, keep, keep in mind though, the ingredients of success are the same. So Super Goop and its home market is a category leader with a mm-hmm. unique position, great brand assets, not just the unique formula behind what they do, but the celebrity or the, the backing of the community, right? Mm. So the legitimate credentials of the brand were there, not in China, but outside of China. And that's yeah. important. That mirror image needs to be there. So you can't really be a startup brand, period, because Chinese will see it as a fake brand that, you know, someone from Wenzhou went to the States and bought a factory, you know? So it, you have to be a real brand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they can look up and see. They have to feel it, see it, believe it. I think that's number one. Uh, so they had that. And second, they had a great operator that put the right financial resources behind it. So they didn't go cheap. They, they did it right. You know, uh, that's important. doesn't mean they overspent, right? But you could argue that a leadership position is underrated in a category, right? Right? Like being the number one or the number two brand in anything, any subcategory is totally yeah. underrated. You almost can't invest enough in getting that leadership position. So I think the, the guy who founded this, this operation, he is a PE background, right? He, he was in finance and he knew like, hey, look, this is a hurdle that most brands can't get over. So he raises money to do these deals. And I think that's a huge advantage. He capitalizes the activation so that his competitors have a harder time doing that, right? Like he's mm-hmm. one of very few brands willing to invest at that level to mm-hmm. reach that scale quickly. I think mm-hmm. that's that is a secret that people can learn from on this on this particular interview. It's resource the brand properly. Success is not incremental in China, mm. or really anywhere. It's like boiling water. The boiling point could be next month or in five years, right? The key is whether you're patient, consistent, and willing to go in for that long, long haul and actually have the right resources over a certain period of time to cause the response and the change in preferences with consumers, right? That comfort. And I think that takes time, right? Impression. Turning an impression into a preference and then an actual yes. sale a long time. In China, it can be faster because of the technology and because of the receptiveness of consumers, especially mm. young um, But in the end, to build a real brand over a long period of time, that that's what you need to do. You know that you're a brand director, right? You're a brand mm-hmm, manager. Mm-hmm. Better, than, right? Better than me. Um, but I think that that bridging that gap is very important. So Supergoop is a case... I have a client who is a case, uh, they ended up not doing services, so we didn't win the contract, but also in beauty, uh, a group from Australia, they own a bunch of beauty brands and cosmetic brands, 
and they went the distribution route uh, mm -hmm. in their mind, they didn't care about controlling China. Their whole idea was they just want volume. And so mm -hmm. they created a really clever wholesale tiered structure and mm -hmm. did three things, downlines. So they had downliners, right? So people working in a cascade yep. through private groups in which this was highly successful, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think one downline alone, they did 30 million RMB, right? This is wow. zero risk to the brand. Yep. Uh, another, they did physical. So a guy took license for one of the brands, big physical retailer, but instead of tier one, he's in tier three. So he's mm -hmm. in Sichuan and Chongqing, and he mm -hmm. does similar studies. And he rolled out a $15 million business for them. And then he had that one of their other brands was KOL activated by Daigos mm -hmm. and shows a more traditional sort of distribution model there. Also successful, another like five or 10. So they ended up building a 25 million wholesale business with three brands in one year. And it's mm -hmm. grown. So I, to them, that was a success. But keep in mind, they've lost control of all three brands. Yeah. So they get them back, but they've got a great business. So I guess those are your choices, right? Mm -hmm. Either you can run it like a super group, you can go in and be very active, control how the outcomes come and have the investment and the scale, the acceleration, or you can wholesale it out, but you have to be very careful. So my key, the point there is around your brand itself, how sensitive are you to other people doing what they want with your brand when you're not looking, right? It's really that, right? And do you need to take back control of all your commerce? So let's say you're, you're a business that's growing, but you want to sell the company. Like your buyer is going to want to control China, right? They're going to want that. Back. So the question is, are you, you know, what is the point of distribution, right? So you have to ask yourself, if you really don't care, and in the short or even midterm, you don't need control, then it's mm. okay. Mm. It's something you have to concern yourself with. But... If you have any ambition of eventually taking over and scaling China once it's proven or having control of your brand globally because you have to, then I don't recommend that route. And I think you need to do the non-exclusive uh, reselling options instead of having flagships go to these, um, like a, the brand flagship go to these distributors, you give them reseller rights. So they have reseller storefronts. You simply control what they're authorized to do and then yes. you control the main. So the main yeah. brand voice you control. So that would be my only message there around that. And those are two real success stories. I have all the documentation if anyone wants to reach out. Data really happened. Uh, we published this stuff, right? And it's not even us that did it, right? I, I just see success in China being very unpredictable, but also interesting when it happens. And a lot of the same features in each case, the characteristics of the brand its level of activation and strength, its positioning, the ability to defend it, become the key factors in what happens later. Is mm -hmm. it successful or failure? Like you can have a wild commercial success that you don't control and someone else makes all the money in China, right? A great example of that is Red Bull. Yes. Right? So Red Bull corporate does not control Red Bull China. They've been trying to get it back. The licensee mm -hmm. in China, 20 year contract expired like two or three years ago. They still can't get it back. It's a 5 billion can a year business that they have no control over. The Chinese company controls China. The, the, the silver cans we're accustomed to, the chrome ones, 
basically have no business in China. It's minuscule compared to the real business, which is that Red Bull licensee. So yeah. this is where you don't want to be. And I think yeah. that is the negative aspect of having a licensee in China that you can't or don't really know well and has control of your IP and the mm. rights to trade in the market. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I completely like the, the super group example, obviously I've, I've seen it and, and um, it, it has been, it has been a great success. And I think what would be interesting is how to sustain that. Obviously, as you said, Bill, like they've got that positioning now as the market leader. So that in itself will help them sustain, but long-term in terms of the amount of investment, um, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, to see how that goes. Yeah. Long term, you know, like every three years, you cycle in and look cycle. at the category leaders, they're all different, right? It's hard to mm. make China sticky, right? So that's why I tell people, like, even if you have an initial win, you may long term lose, right? You can't mm. assume anything, right? I mean, yeah. most of my clients grind it out. Once you ground out a leadership or let's say a top five position, like um, of the, you know, 20 stores we have, let's say, 10 of the brands are now category leaders after anywhere from one year of operation to literally, I have one that's six years before they hit that, right? Uh, but it is defendable. Once you get over that miserable hump, and I mean miserable, so let's be clear, this is not an easy thing for anyone. Your brand team is going to be unhappy. Your brand director, Ali, is going to be miserable screaming at me every day. It's never easy for you. Like, but once it hits, everyone's happy. The water yeah. starts boiling. God yeah. damn, there's nothing you can do this wrong, right? You can literally like pour acid on the product and everyone's fine as long as the sales keep going that way, right? So, but I think, you know, that it's sort of understanding what sustainability means and what kind of investment level you get your hit, water boils, you're successful. Yeah. What is a sustainable growth rate? So mm -hmm. I have clients that restrict that. The first few years, they're doing a high cost load. Uh, so let's say they're spending... 50% of sales on marketing, some in some categories, maybe even 70. Mm -hmm. But once you get over that hump, the leadership hump, your cost drops to 15%. Drops. Mm. And so, and you can control that, but you can't optimize your cost until you hit leadership. Mm. You don't get in that top pool of brands that gets automatically recycled by the recommendation engine, automatically considered for every event until mm. you're in the, the cool kids crowd, you literally cannot do that. You must sustain the investment mm -hmm. until you hit. Once you hit, you your your sales go up and your cost drops, and it's a big bell curve. So it's miserable, like a very steep mountain, but then it's like downhill. Mm -hmm. So you go from like vertical uphill to vertical downhill in China. It's in the U.S. It might be like this, or in the okay. U.K. It takes the right. It's long and wide curve in China. It is like this right you know it's like that scary ride at the carnival that takes you straight up and then drops you straight down. yes 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 you've got to you've got to be ready ready for it right it's uh you need yeah. to have your seat belts on and uh, yeah um, so we, we have great success we have a client who's been with us for three years and they've been miserable i mean losing money i mean everyone's unhappy my team and in the fall of last year after two and a half years for some reason in September, water boiled. We don't even, we can't even point it to a specific thing or an event. It just, just hit a tipping point mm -hmm. with consumers. 
and then now they can't do anything wrong. Like we're out of inventory. We're screaming at them because they can't get enough inventory in. Like we're out of stock until March. I'm like, what the hell kind of business do you run? This is my team. They've been yelling at us for years. So now I'm like, AJ, what are you thinking? Like you, what? You can't deliver? Air freighted from your San Diego office? What are we waiting? You know, this kind of thing. It's funny because the, you wait the for that moment. Yeah. And, and but listen, the tables turn, but they're happy because yeah. China's buying. Right? They're yeah. like, we yes, you know, like finally we're making, you know, three years. Yeah. Three years. Long you know, years, right? Just, mm, yeah. Really tough. Okay. So just a uh, final thing. Uh, one thing that why we've been I've been hearing about, talking to people a bit about is obviously there's a massive duopoly between Tencent and Alibaba. And, uh, you know, it's it's been like that for a long time and it makes it difficult for brands to have the options, especially cosmetics brands. Basically, they all go to um, Tmall. Do you think that, do you see that changing? Do you see any um, shakeup in terms of the tech giants in China or do you see it continuing? Either Chris, <sighs> your crystal ball, crystal ball. Mm -hmm. Um, well, you know, uh, what I would say, cause I don't predict the future. I mean, anyone who predicts China's is madness, right? It's just madness. Uh, a couple of signs that I see there might be some change, uh, is I think there's potential disruption, uh, with Douyin and yeah. with on lower end products, Kuaisho seeing mm -hmm. some sales momentum, but actually Bili Bili has a lot of potential. I think mm -hmm. people aren't thinking about it. I think that that has some real potential for activation in terms of control of transactions. I think Alibaba is going to remain dominant for a while. Indoor mm -hmm. door trades at the bottom of the barrel. They are not going to be able to change their positioning from a liquidator, which has got a great, you know, it's like, it's great positioning, but it's more like Walmart for China, right? So yeah. they're not going to take over the beauty industry, which mm -hmm. is all about premium and positioning and brand and, you know, engagement and like lifestyle. I think they have a long way to go, even though they are getting a lot of traction in the, in the lower tiers. I don't think that's suitable for most foreign beauty brands, which are positioned yeah. more for the tier one consumer, like the well-to-do youth, right? Uh, well-to-do youth culture in China. And I think um, Alibaba should likely will remain a couple of reasons. They basically invested in Xiao Hongshu, you know, a little mm -hmm. red book, right? Mm -hmm. And now they've eliminated the block. So all the traffic is now directing, right? So the community traffic and beauty is going straight into Tmall and Taobao, yeah. right? Um, they also have managed to so far stop Douyin from taking market share from them. So everyone thinks, even though there's been a uh, like a breaking of the two of them working together, actually we've tested Douyin. It has not pulled like like Tmall Pulse. It's still you know traffic with purchase intent is still highly concentrated in the Alibaba ecosystem. And then I would say, but some of these activation platforms have potential to do some disruption. I don't think Tencent is is going to do anything except lose market share. Mm, so I mean. It doesn't go anywhere. It's not anywhere with beauty anyway, Tencent, right? So, um, mm. well, but that's what I'm saying. There's just JD and Tencent and like all their components. They're just not even in the game really when it comes down to it. So I still think Alibaba will dominate. They also own and have controlled or at least cleverly invested in 
some of the key origin of demand, right? So they sort of built out and pioneered new retail infrastructure, particularly in beauty. They're yeah. pioneering tech. They've pioneered live stream, right? The more promising activation channels, sales channels, they sort of have a dominant position still. And they keep doing that, right? They keep mm -hmm. investing heavily in ownership of the front end, which I think is clever, right? They're not mm -hmm. just going after transactions. They want to control the whole path to purchase, which mm. makes my life as an operator miserable, right? Because we got to do everything now, right? You everything got, with You've got to yeah, help yeah. with everything. You can't just focus on traffic inside their platform. You can't. You've got to be working from every angle. Every angle. So I think, yeah, and, the, and they do a good job with influence. Um, they have a whole department. I, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but... Um, they help us with KOL selections for their events. Mm -hmm. They help yeah. us with broker deals. They help secure top spots. I mean, obviously we work with Austin Lee and Via's team and all that when we can. And, and you know, uh, if it's a major Alibaba event or around an event, they, they do a lot to help, help with those negotiations, mm -hmm. sorting and separating good from bad, um, encouraging us to do things, sharing casework and data. I mean, I think they're the most active marketers Yes. as a commerce platform and uh the most active the most creative and the most aggressive so like jd wants business but they don't offer you anything right the only time you get anything from them is if they're buying your inventory right it's like amazon if you go through the zillion the, the direct purchase you get great service so our mm -hmm. clients that can get into zillion which we have many we're so happy so first of all there's no risk Right. They cover all the marketing mm. and they move much bigger volumes. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they own the rights to the trade. Uh, and, um, you know, so that's that's the case on the JD side. Um, and then some of the other platforms we work with, I think Douyin, they're getting more aggressive. They built a department of category managers. So they have Xiao Arnau. You know, the, the, the guys at Pindodor call us every day. We ignore them. You know, that kind of thing. Because <laughs> my clients will kill me if we put them on that platform. You know, it's uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I still don't see a major threat. Actually, the single biggest threat is not the competition itself. It's the government. Yes, that's what I was going to, that's my, that's my oh, sort okay. of follow on question, the re regulatory aspect and whether they're getting too big for um, their own good and whether the government will sort of stop that or try and curb it some way. Yeah, I, I think um, the most significant risk right now is Jack Ma's monopolies, right? Like he, he just owns too much of the infrastructure and he is a bad boy. You know, you just, he didn't keep his mouth shut. And, uh, you know, and it, the ant IPO is quite a big deal, right? Because it's, <laughs> it's more important to the government than Alibaba itself, because it's the control of a monetary system that is sort of, being run by private hands, right? It's, mm. they manage a trillion plus US dollars through their ecosystem in Alipay. It's a significant, it's like bigger than MasterCard Visa, right? It's, yeah, yeah. it's bigger than the economy of Africa as a continent, right? Like it's, this guy controls it and that's money, right? So yeah. I think the government is not happy with mm. his control of an alternate universe of finance that he controls. Further, if he does go public, his net worth will be outrageous, right? Because that his equity in that business is significant. Mm. So I think there's several issues. One is that, uh, but more importantly, is that he's kind of let it known that he'll be an outspoken critic 
Um, and that we know doesn't go down well. So Never it wouldn't good. surprise me at all if these things are broken up. Um, I think in terms of e-commerce, mm. potentially he'll maintain his position. He's got, you know, 60, 70% market share. I don't see that changing, but I think on payments, they may disrupt that altogether. Yeah. Right. Separate right. the fund from the clearing house, from his other platforms. I think they may go after the financial infrastructure because mm. that's what they can tax anyway. So what they sure. want to control is money. They yeah. don't care about your technology, right? Great. I'm glad yeah. you're retail. They want to control the taxes, mm. the tax and the cash. Right? Mm -hmm. like that's, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's it. And they've just issued digital UN, yep. which I believe, you know, JD jumped right on that in the mm. aftermath and said, yep, we'll take it. And I think the idea there is uh, they may eliminate this private clearinghouse and just make it public. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of his infrastructure is nationalized in yep. the next year or two. Okay. But but as for as for Timor, that that you don't think there'll be much of a shake up there. They'll maintain their market share and um, keep going. I mean, who's going to disrupt them? Like I said, from a commercial standpoint, consumers would have to disrupt yeah. them. Mm. So consumers have to make an active choice to not shop there. And why and would they? Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. What is your alternative? You know, you don't have nearly the choices, the factory direct access. You know, forget Tmall. Tmall is a button in Taobao. Taobao is Taobao. just one of the most powerful tools marketplace in the world, right? It's mm. it's so big. And look, you can buy Factory Direct, right? I mean, I we buy Factory Direct every day for my home. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm going to go there first, right? And, yeah. You know, and the brands that are have their Tmall listings in Taobao, we're going to look at them, right? We're also going to look at other options. And I think there's no other true marketplace model in China. And I think the marketplace, you know, really appeals to Chinese. You know, it's an open trading system, has a lot of trust. There's guaranteed rights of return. Consumers yeah. are fully protected. Merchants are always at risk. Um, it's public. All your data is public. You can't hide as a merchant. Whereas mm -hmm. like, you know, Douyin is murky. Can't see the data. Don't know if this guy's going to cheat you. It's the same mm -hmm. intensity, right? WeChat, how mm -hmm. do I know you're you yeah. the real brand? Well, I think they they own authenticity, trust, legitimacy, and a guaranteed right of return. So if you're going to transact, why not go to the place where you can squeeze everyone to death, <laughs> get amazing service, pay direct from the factory, or buy the best brand for half price? You know, like why would you go anywhere else, right? Yeah. So I think unless your consumers really get fed up with him personally, mm, boycott yeah. him, like Dolce and Gabbana boycott. Um, that's it. But it's the same as we say in the U.S., you know, half of people voted for the orange Mussolini and, uh, you know, the mango head. So, you know, like, look, he's a national hero. He is yeah. a hero in China. He may be contentious, a little subversive, wants to change China. But in the end, for a lot of people in China, he is the ultimate, you know, success story. Right. Mm. So I think until consumers decide that he's bad, like Dolce Gabbana, right? He's a bad man and whatever. Mm. They're not going to boycott Alibaba. I don't no. see it that way. They yeah. may say they will, but in the end, are they going to really switch everything to JD or Pindordor Group Buy? I mean, yeah. come on, you know? Louis Vuitton is not going to trade bags on Pindordor in a group price. They're just not going to do that. The reality is, if you're a premium beauty brand, you can't even yeah. think about positioning yourself on these other platforms. It's dangerous. Mm. 
Mm, it's not, totally. not just irresponsible. It's just downright silly. Right? Yeah. For now. Absolutely. Yeah, for now. For now. Well, all right. Thank you so much, Josh. I'm sure people will get lots of things to think about there and um, hopefully some mistakes that they won't make um, based on based on the, the tips. And if people want to get in touch with you or um, maybe LinkedIn, is that the best place? Yeah, I think if you want, uh, we publish, as you know, 300 plus articles and books and things a year. So it's all free, right? We, we, we work with brands, so we give away, we can't serve everyone. So we essentially share as much knowledge as we can and try to help as many people as possible have a successful experience in China. So the intent is really there. We're about thriving uh, and we're about sharing in a transparent and honest format what's really happening on the ground and how you can prepare your way to win in China. So please add me on LinkedIn. You will get all that for free, right? The other option is you can go to kungfudata.com. All of our stuff is published there. You'll have to sort through thousands, but there's plenty of stuff to download. You can spend all day reading. I'm not sure all of it's good, but at least something in there will be useful, I'm sure, right? Uh, my team does an amazing job with the research and the preparation. And keep in mind, we are not, uh, we, we really do the work. So the stuff that you see is based on live results. You know, we, we manage a lot of brands, we manage a lot of stores, and the stuff we publish is our direct experience. So it's, it's facts and experiences only. So I think mm -hmm. even if you disagree, you have a different opinion, our experience is this, you know, take it for what it's worth. Maybe you can do it better. Good, I welcome you to do it better, but uh, hell, tell you, teach me how to do it better. Um, I would love to know. Uh, so please opt in either way and you'll get great information. I'm sure you'll find something yes. good. You definitely will. I, um, I, as I said at the beginning, it's, it's great content. So thank you so much, Josh. And yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure as always, Ali. Good luck with everything. Thanks. Talk soon. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode of Clean Beauty Asia, the podcast with me, Ali Rook. I hope you found the content useful with tips and tricks and takeaways that can really help you move your China journey forward. I always like to hear from my listeners, so please join me on LinkedIn, Ali Rook, or Instagram, Clean Beauty Asia, and I'll be very happy to talk to you more. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.